Welcome to the Health and Wealth Podcast, where health is true wealth and the true wealth is your health. I just interviewed Dr. Dan Faber, DMD, Masters of Public Health. This was an interesting podcast. It's one of the first times I actually pushed on an interviewee and asked him if he thought his endeavors or his missions were fruitless. So Dan is very passionate about providing public health. And I asked him, with the rise in obesity, the rise in disease, the rise in cancer, the rise in what they call diseases of affluence or modern diseases, with us being genetically programmed to get sicker and sicker because of the way we're eating, the way we're living, why even care about public health? Will public health even make a difference in improving our health? And Dan has some pretty interesting answers. So check us out. Dan, if you're listening, I really appreciate you being on this interview, and I'll see you guys soon. Let's get going with the origin story. Sure. Tell me about your beginnings. Why do you have this passion to get access to dental care to people? Yeah, so um, it starts in my practice. So I, had a, I started a practice from scratch. You know, it was always patient-centered, patient-focused. They did Dawson. We call it the Harmony Dental Group. That was the name of our practice because it was Harmony along with the, you know, the whole idea of Harmony with the Dawson thing. And, and obviously, it was a good word and for, for our patients. But um, over the years, the story is that we added uh, pediatrics over the years. We added actually a pediatric section. And in Connecticut, they take um, – they pay pretty well with insurance for kids, but they don't pay well for adults. So we were, it was great. We started seeing kids and the parents of the kids really wanted to see us. They were, they were like, well, this is great practice. We, we love you guys and we want to see you too. And we had to not be, we had to tell them we couldn't see them. And that always, that always bugged me as, as just a, a dentist. Like everybody talks about saying, you know, getting your patients to say yes to you about everything. I had a problem with saying no to, to patients. And because of that reason. Um, so uh, long story short, um, I decided to sell the, my practice. At least I sold it to my partner, who I still love. He's awesome. He's done really well with the practice. I actually still work there a couple of days a week. But uh, it just always bugged me that I, I there were certain patients I couldn't treat, and it wasn't, be, and it was only because of money. It was only because we couldn't afford to take the uh, insurance payment they would pay. They paid literally half of what they would pay for kids. What insurance is, this is that? Uh, Medi- it was Medicaid. It's uh, it's called in, Medicaid. In Medicaid okay. we call it Husky. You know, like the Connecticut Husky, uh, Yukon Huskies, and and um, it's uh, generally and it, and weirdly, it's one of the best in the country, which is a weird thing. Um, so uh, that kind of prompted me to sell the practice. It wasn't the only thing, but I sold the practice, and I just wanted to evolve and do different things. I loved starting my practice. You know, building it. Uh, it was just an amazing experience. And then at a cer- certain point, I kind of just felt like I was, I'm not going to say coasting, but feeling like I wanted to do more. Um, and I felt like I was almost like an employee in my own practice. And I didn't, I liked the feeling of growing and doing. And I, and uh, while I could have continued to grow that practice, I just, there's there more I wanted to do. And this issue really bothered me. So that kind of drove me into public health, into actually going for education in public health. And, um, and that's, you know, I ended up, I ended up um, at a good program and it wasn't a dental public health program. It was strictly just a, a general public health uh, master's program. And I was really exposed to some amazing kind of education there. It kind of opened my eyes to other things going on in healthcare. And, um, but 
at the, at the core of it, it was, you know, dentistry was really where I wanted to live. And I, and public health has a lot of different avenues. You can go into policy, you can go into um, a lot of different, different areas. And my thing is always grassroots, not grassroots, but in the, you know, in the trenches doing work, you know, seeing patients, you know, really being on the ground. I didn't want to just kind of say, speculate and say, you know, this is what we need to do. I wanted to be on the ground and doing it almost like a proof of concept. Like this is what we can do to improve things. Um, and that kind of drew me, that kind of, that pivoted me into teaching because I thought to myself, how can I make a difference? You know, my whole thing from the start, you know, from when I was in the practice and I could, and I had to say no to those patients was, um, you know, how can I improve access to care? And it wasn't just access to care. It was access to higher quality care. Because one thing I saw, you know, when I was learning public health is everybody always talks about improving access to care, which is a problem, but who cares about just having the access if the care is not any good? And that's a big problem I saw in dentistry as a dentist. I mean, I was doing the best I could as a dentist, but you could easily see, every dentist can easily see when other patients come to the practice, the horrible dentistry that's going on out there. Not everybody, obviously, but um, some bad stuff. So uh, I wanted to kind of raise the bar and teaching kind of seemed like a way to do that, uh, to improve the quality of other dentists who then would go on to treat, you know, so many more patients than I could treat by myself as a, as a dentist. All, I mean, that's the main difference between public health and just being a, a healthcare, you know, a, a, a healthcare provider, like a doctor or a dentist is, you know, we're treating individual patients. Public health is treating at the population level. So that that's the big main, main difference. And the impact you can have in public health is just so much more. Not to say not to discount anything anybody else is doing out there as, as a, you know, as an amazing clinician. So that's that's kind of what drew me to teaching. And I really discovered I had a passion for teaching. I was connecting with with the students in a really, really deep way. Um, they you know, were responding to what I was how I was teaching. I was definitely teaching very different than everybody else at the school. I was kind of doing my own thing in a way. Um, and my, uh, and I discovered, you know, when I'm in a, uh, in my own practice, I'm, you know, you're kind of in a bubble. A lot of, I'm sure a lot of practitioners out there feel like that, but just kind of, they might go to continuing ed here and there and pal around with dentists sometimes and see sort of what everybody's doing out there. But it, but it can be a very lonely profession, even if you have a partner. So you're, but you're just very much in your bubble, doing your thing, you know, just kind of living your life, doing it, you figuring out things on your own, doing things your own way. And you don't really realize how much different it is until I go to a school and I'm teaching these students and I see how different I am from the other dentists who are, who are teaching there. And, um, let me ask you, let me ask you one question. I don't mean to cut no, you off, but let me ask you one question. I'm blabbing, for I'm blabbing on. Maybe. Thanks. No, no. For the providers that don't know. Why do you think Medicaid providing dentistry is sometimes lower quality than we'll say fee-for-service dentistry or fee-for-service medicine? Yeah. So, it, uh, I mean, Medicaid, I mean, just by virtue, it, it does, obviously it doesn't re reimburse at the same level. And I think because it doesn't reimburse at the same level, it demands volume. So doctors or dentists have to see patients at a much higher volume than they normally could or would if the patient was paying uh, an adequate price out of pocket to run the business. So if, you know, okay. so if the overhead is X, Y, Z, 
and in your business and, you know, you can't afford, just like the example I gave in my own practice, we could afford to see kids because they were paying enough Medicaid to cover the co- our costs. And, you know, you know, we could be paying a hygienist in Connecticut, 40, $50, whatever it was at the time per hour. And if, if, uh, if they're not reimbursing at a, at a rate that's even equal to their salary, to a hygienist salary, it's hard to, you know, that's not exactly great business, right? You can't maintain your business. Um, so it, you know, just as another aside, it actually pushes, it pushed me to be more pro bono. So like it, it made, it said, it said to me, like, I can't see these adults at the prices that they're going to be paying for adults. Um, so I would do a lot of pro bono for patients. Oh, this parent comes in this, you know, this father comes in, this mother comes in and I'm going to help them. Some, some of them had pretty complex stuff going on. I was happy to help them. I would discount as much as I could, all that kind of stuff, but that's not a business model, right? That's just, that's just charity in a sense. And that's the kind of stuff that, that bugged me. But to get back to your, your original question, um, yeah, I mean, Medicaid just, it's just not enough. It's just not enough compensation to uh, maintain a business sometimes, sometimes. Obviously there are Medicaid, you know, practices and typically I'm not going to say they're low quality, but they're pushed into working faster, working more, seeing more patients and not being able to provide a higher caliber of dentistry that you might find in a, in a, in a fee-for-service private practice. So I, I couldn't agree more. And like you said it perfectly earlier in this podcast, you're not trying to increase access to care because this may sound ignorant, but I think anyone can kind of get access to care. What you're trying to increase is the quality of care these underserved populations are currently yeah. getting. So how do we do that? <laughs> Well, that's the, that's the, you know, multi-gazillion dollar question. I mean, we're all, we're all <laughs> yeah. trying to figure that out um, in all of healthcare, not just dentistry. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a tough one. It's a, t- a tough nut to crack. Um, ultimately though, one way you, I mean, my approach to it is if at least I'm, we're training uh, dentists to, to level up to a, a higher le- a higher standard, then at least they're, patients are only seeing people who are at a higher standard, right? So you're, you're, you're just, they just have better practitioners across the board. And, you know, that might be a little naive on my part, but that's where I live, right? I'm, I'm a dentist and I know how to do dentistry and I want to show other people how to do a better form of dentistry that works for me. And, you know, my, my whole thing is, um, you know, my whole thing is about patient collaboration, building patient rapport, and, and making a good experience for the patient. It doesn't have to be an expensive practice to have an amazing experience for a patient, but just kind of giving patients dignity, um, no, matter at, no matter what level they're at, you know, in terms of, in terms of their uh, socio, socioeconomic status, you know. So would you think that, so I'm private practice, I'm fee for service. If I was going to supply high quality care to an underserved patient, I would either have to do it pro bono or I would have to somehow be involved in a government program that subsidizes it. Or how would that happen in private practice? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's almost like, uh, I mean, I'm not saying it, this is not a political statement, but it's kind of like uh, it's in any way you kind of slice it. It's sort of a socialistic kind of point of view that you have, you know, the, the more wealthy subsidizing the, the the less wealthy, right? Because if you have a fee for service for fee for service practice and you're charging, you know, a decent fee for your for your treatment, 
that will make maybe make you a, more affordable for you to provide that same level of treatment at a lower price to someone more in need. So it's kind of like, you know, spreading, trying to spread equality across it. Is that a model? I mean, it's, it's not much of a model, but in terms of a system, I know for a fact, cause I've spoken when I was in my public health program and I've spoken since to it's, um, people who run these, um, I've spoken to people in the state and I've also spoken to people who are running um, advocacy programs targeted directly at oral health in Connecticut. I mean, there's, there's those, there's even programs like that. Um, and it's, it's rough. I mean, they, they're, they're very much kind of working at the surface level, making policies that really aren't making large differences overall. And that's kind of the nature of public health, I think, which I'm not that kind of person. I'm more of a like, let's get in there, let's get to work, let's get things done. Uh, I want to make big changes and I, and, and I want it to happen not on, on, a, on a faster pace. And, you know, public health and working in government and policy, you know how slow that could that can be. Um, so, so, you know, I think the, my approach is let's do a proof. It's almost like a business, like you're do a proof of concept on the ground to show government that this is how it can work, you know? Um, sorry, I digressed a little bit there, but no. Do you have the proof of concept so, of what we could show the government? Yeah, so um, I have ideas. Obviously, there are people out there. I think doing things. So, so I, I'm I'm starting to discover more of these organizations. I discovered a, a couple actually. There's a company. Um, it's a for-profit company, but it also has a. It's attached to a um, a, not, a, for, a foundation essentially where they provide care in, uh, in Ecuador, for example. And they're providing, and they have a model of, a for-profit model providing den dental care for an underserved population in Ecuador. And they're experimenting with a lot of different things, but those are the kinds of things happening, like more of an uh, social entrepreneurship approach, rather, you know, which is a bottom-up approach, rather than kind of like people coming up with policies on the top and then trying to having it trickle down to commerce on the bottom. And I'm not saying one's right or wrong. It's just, you know, there are different people coming at it from different ways. Um, you know, policy can be very powerful. I mean, you can think of, you know, different, you know, policies that when you change it, it really drastically, I mean, look at COVID. I mean, when people make policy at the top, things do change, right? Things, whether it be good or bad, however, you know, however you view it, you know, when you change policy, it does change um, reality. It sounds like your perspective, because you're more boots on the ground. Do you like the bottom up approach better to solve this problem? Personally, I do because that's because that's how I because that's that, that's how my brain works. Like that's how you know I'm more of a, a quick start kind of like let's get going. Let's let's I learn as I go. You know I'm more of a let's learn as you go, as we move ahead kind of person rather than let's just plan you know to the to the to the T and then and then try it out. I just you know some some of these things you just have to start trying iterating you know innovating and iterating along the way. Um, and then hopefully, you know, those ideas get translated. I mean, the tough part is translating those or uh, um, communicating those ideas to the top, you know, to the governments and saying, you know, look, this is, this is working, you know, you, we can do this on a, on a much broader scale. Um, but there, there, you know, those kinds of things do happen. And I think it's, um, you know, oral and, and oral health, you know, global oral health or even domestic oral health uh, in terms of a public health policy is like so 
unrecognized. I mean, it's recognized. It's like we recognize that dental health is a problem across the world, but then they don't really, there's not much done with it. So it's a big open area in terms of, of need. You know, there, I mean, if anybody, that's why I like, I'm not promoting dentists to go into public health per se or get a public health degree, but we do need dentists who have a public health uh, mindset and wanted to kind of start doing these things because it's a huge, huge need in this world. And as you know, I mean, there's systemic connections to oral health. I mean, oral health affects um, major aspects of, of population health. Um, and so that's, you know, it's, it's, it's extremely, extremely needed. Um, and as far as the, um, I was going to say about the uh, public health, um, I forgot what I was going to say. Sorry. That's okay. So what, no, they're all good. So what's what's the first step? Because I am, I'll tell you from my perspective, I am so ignorant to public health. I actually don't even know what you learn in public health school. So maybe start with that for the people listening because I just like learned where the MPH was in school. I, yeah. I mastered public health. And that's like my the limit of my knowledge. No. So what do you even do in public health school? No, it's great. It's a great question. I so so people ask me. I, I have had dentists ask me, like, you know, should I go into public health? Is it worth it getting the degree and everything? And it, obviously, it's very dependent on the person and what they're looking to do. But I would say, compared to like a dental degree, a professional degree, or a medical degree, or a law degree, or any of those things, it's more of an amorphous kind of degree. It's it's a general generalist degree of you know, I took classes and I, and there are dental specific public health. I think, I think, I believe public health is a recognized specialty in dentistry. It's like one of the, one of the, okay. I don't know how many there are, nine, whatever it is. There's like a hundred now. <laughs> right, one of the hundred. Yeah. So, so uh, it is, it is a recognized one. I didn't do one. I did the general one, uh, you know, where, cause I kind of wanted that overall exposure and I did global health as my kind of concentration, but you know, you learn things, there's areas like epidemiology is a big, you know, that's the data, math, statistical side of public health. That's what most people probably think of when they think of public health. Um, and then there's like the, the the policy side where people get involved with the, you know, advocating for certain policies in government. Um, and there's a bunch of other, I'm trying to think of in the other classes. I mean, it, you know, you, you do things like, you know, um, learning how to evaluate research, which I found actually was pretty a pretty uh, interesting way to thing to learn. Um, I, I mean, I took classes in uh, virology, you know, infectious disease, not virology, infectious disease. Um, you know, so you, it, it does span the gamut in terms of, um, oh, I took uh, something about oh, what I took, informatics. That's a whole other area of not just public health. It's a whole other area in general where it's the study of the flow of data and how data is moved from place to place and HIPAA and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, that's all related to public health. Public health has a lot of different tentacles kind of like touching different areas, but, but there are a few just, you know, big kind of broad stroke areas that, that public health gets involved in. But when you finish public health program, um, the ones, the people who, so I was in a, uh, I was, it was my cohort per se. It was, I was amongst everybody else, but my cohort was other healthcare professionals who are doing the, the, the master's. Um, so I, I, I knew that. Do they share the same passion as you where they want to increase quality of access? Um, to everybody or access everybody to has their different care? reasons for going into it. Uh, I think generally, obviously, I think if you're going to do it, people are pretty passionate. Sometimes some people have a very specific path of, you know, they needed a degree to do, to do something. Um, there are, there are, I think there might even be DMD or DADS programs with, with, with an MPH. So the people going to school, like 
to become a dentist or a doctor. I know there's MD, PMD, MD, MPH programs where it's all built into the same thing. So there were some people in there who were a medical doctor and then they, uh, like, I think between their third and fourth year, they like just stop and they go do the MPH and they come back. So there's, you know, but I think, you know, some people want positions in government. Um, so there's like, you know, uh, if you're going to be working for the CDC, you know, things like that, there, you know, it helps to have an MPH. I'm not sure if it matters from a knowledge perspective, but I think it matters from just a, maybe a credentialing, um, networking perspective, you know, it gives you a certain amount of, I guess, gravitas in terms of having a certain knowledge base that people respect in terms of, um, saying, or at least it's, it's, it's almost like the way I look at it, it's more like an advertisement saying, you know, I'm in, this means something to me, you know, I mean, it's a lot of work to just say that, but that's not obviously why I just did it. But, um, but uh, it, it means, it does mean something to me and it's kind of, it, it, it's become my focus, but it hasn't, but I'm, but I'm still on the ground level, you know, I'm still doing what sure. I do, would do be doing normally, but you know, it, my direction is more kind of that direction. Okay. So you have an MPH in public health. I have a PhD in pessimism. So I'm, <laughs> I'm only playing the devil's advocate here. So I want you to prove me wrong with what I'm about Go to ahead. say. And I'm not saying this to be a jerk at all. So you couldn't, couldn't possibly by 2030, have <laughs> by 2030, half of the United States will, will probably be morbidly obese. Um, diabetes going through the roof. Everybody has a cavity. Everybody has gone. Disease is flourishing. I don't think policy changes will account for the lack of responsibility of people to improve their health. How can public health help curb the increase of modern disease? Oh, um, I agree. Well, first of all, I agree with you. I think nothing replaces personal responsibility in the sense of, of you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, it's like if you, I think it's hilarious that, you know, in the system, you know, what's the number one killer in the United States? I believe it's still heart disease, right? Or cardiovascular disease. I think cancer is like a close second. Yeah. Right. COVID is disease. mixed in there now, but, but yeah, I mean, let's just say heart disease is a huge one, right? So all the whole medical system is built around, you know, take this pill and you're going to, you know, we'll, uh, it's going to manage your heart disease, but go live like an idiot. Go, go eat. You know, they say, don't, you know, yeah. everybody says, don't eat this, don't eat that. But I mean, the system is not built. All of business is not around like that. And this is, I don't know if it's controversial to say this, but during COVID, if you remember, so this, this I learned. So I, oh, another class I took at, 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 uh, in my MPH program was, uh, obesity. Obe like it was a fantastic class. Um, and uh, so I went to Yale. It had amazing. I mean, you can imagine the amount of uh, great faculty that are there. You know, we had guest speakers coming in who were like, you know, the world renowned um, uh, surgeon in, in uh, obesity. But the one thing I was going to say about this is if you remember during. So in that class, one of the things we studied because it was happening at you know around the time was was during covid because uh, was. Eighty percent of people that died, I believe, were from were obese. Eighty percent that people that died from covid were obese. And so along with age. I mean, 80% has to be one of has uh, obesity has to be one of the largest risk factors for dying from COVID, not getting COVID, but dying from COVID. Now, with a with a rate like that, wouldn't you expect that Dr. Fauci or whoever else, CDC, the representative powers that be, would be spouting knowledge, you know, information about 
look, you, you know, you can't just lose a bunch of weight, right? Right. You know, you can't just start, you know, losing weight just to prevent yourself from getting COVID during COVID. I get that. That's that. That's unrealistic. But the, wouldn't wouldn't you think being healthy, eating better, exercising, taking care of your body, and your and you know, paying attention to your lifestyle, all these kind of things would at least matter. Like they would say, you know, let's let's maybe we should focus on these things. Being that. 80% of people who are dying are dying. Did you did you know that statistic, that 80% of people that's... I didn't know it was 80%, but I knew the number one characteristic of death was obesity. All right, but but I didn't recall, and because I, I know, because I noticed, I don't recall Fauci or many other people speaking about that, like on a daily... Like, why wouldn't you be speaking about the thing that's... If 80% of people who are dying are dying because of a certain thing, wouldn't you think that would be something they'd want to talk about more? I just think there's this... There's, it's, it's, it, there is a lot of, um, what's the word? Uh, uh, I'm just blanking out on the word. Um, uh, you know, um, stuff about, you know, obesity, not being, uh, um, you know, people not wanting to talk about it. And it's, it's like, a uh, it's one of those words that people, you know, they don't want to, you know, because of, you know, you don't want to say someone's obese, like because of all the PC issues around it, there's a lot of lack of focus on it. So, um, that being said, what do you, you know, what are you going to do about that? So, so there was no real treatment for COVID, you know, you had the vaccine, but there, but the only real treatment really was to be healthy, but no one really wanted to talk like that. And the whole system is kind of built around, they don't want to dislodge the system or, um, you know, make, set the system off track. If, you know, if, if the whole economy is built around foods and a certain way of being, you know, they were probably scared to like really throw things off kilter even more than they were. Okay, that's fair, I guess. But in the meantime, people just are just, just continue to be having healthy, unhealthy habits. So, so these professors at Yale, what were their theories on why obesity is skyrocketing? Well, I mean, obesity skyrockets. I mean, go look at other. I mean, other countries. Other countries are catching up, but uh, obesity skyrockets because we eat like crap. I mean, I mean, it's it's not it's not rocket science. And the other thing, the other problem is there's, um, uh, I don't know if you ever call, heard of uh, um, uh, like uh, food deserts. In the, in the, no. So a food desert, like is a place, you know, you know, there are a lot of them in the United States, these areas of the country where there's lack of, it's not lack of new, of food, it's a lack of nutrition. So people are, you know, when you think of someone who's like growing up, when you saw, when you think of, when you picture in your head, somebody who's hungry, like, what do you picture? You picture probably those commercials, right? From from like a kid from God, Ethiopia. I mean, that was the when we were growing up. I'm sure that was the same. Yeah, it's that commercial you always see. It's kids starving in Ethiopia, skin and bones, and that's hunger, right? But hunger now looks like obesity. So, because these are people who are nutritionally hungry, so they so they have no, they're just not getting enough nutrients. All they have the food desert. You can't get it. You can't get fruit and vegetables in the food desert. You can only get McDonald's. You, know, you can only get. So it was a food desert, like a low income area. Well, it's typically low income area. I mean, think about you know. I mean, there's a statistic I think that says if if you want to open a certain status uh, store or or business, just look where all the Whole Foods are. That will tell you. You don't even have to look up the demographics. Whole Foods are in places where people can afford it, right? So it, it just became it's become such that the amount of calories you can get from a, a, a McDonald's Happy Meal is like. I don't know the percentage, but it's vastly more than what you can pay for just getting, you know, something fruit and vegetables from a, from a supermarket. I mean, it's amazing that now, you know, in this, in this 
error, you, it's a, it's much more expensive to get healthy food. Absolutely. So these professors were explaining that because of the food desert, lower income areas are getting surplus of calories, but lack of essential nutrients. To survive. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, they, it wasn't just the professors saying that one thing. I mean, but that's just an example of of what of what hunger can look like today. And obesity doesn't necessarily mean people just eating a bunch of food. It's it's eating the wrong food. It means they're not exercising. It means they're you know they're they don't have jobs that allow them that give them time to go exercise. Their education they're, they're not educated to know what they need to do. It's uh it's not like they want to be obese. It's not that it's, it it does it doesn't have to do with laziness. It has to do with lack of wealth. A lot of the time. Have you heard the phrase obesogenic environment? Uh, uh, yeah, I think so. But I mean, I can imagine sounds like basically what I'm saying. It, exactly. Yeah. It's basically like the environment it's set up perp, not purposely It's set up to make you obese. Yeah. Like you have to work incredibly hard with an incredible amount of knowledge to counteract getting obese in those environments. And it sounds like that's the problem with most of the areas you're talking about, the food desert. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be, I mean, obviously you see obese people wherever you go, so it's not just relegated to uh, there's people who are wealthier who are, who are obese as well. But but just I mean just look at the the foods that are the easiest to get the foods that I mean we're we're you're, we're human beings I mean we're genetically engineered to eat as much sugar and fat as we can because in you know and and when I say olden times I'm talking hunter gatherer times when when our bodies were really you know we've evolved into something you know when you came across you know a, a bush full of, uh, full of, uh, fruit, you know, you wanted to eat that as much as you could at that time. Cause you don't know when the next time you're coming across a bush like that. And if you didn't eat it then, and the reason you ever think about like, you ever hear like, Oh, when you eat sugar, you're not satiated. Like you always want to eat more. And that's because that's because of that evolutionary thing. Cause when you came to that bush of sugar, of fruit, you wanted to eat it as much as you could, because if you didn't eat it, then some other animal will come along and just eat all the fruit off the tree. So we're genetic, you know, and, and with yeah. fat, the same thing. You didn't know where your next meal was coming. So you got to, you got to fill up. So, we, so nothing's changed. I mean, gen we're genetically the same people. The only thing that's changed is now we can eat unlimited sugar and fat all we, all we want. And we generally don't get satiated. So that leads, that leads to obesity. And you don't see these kinds of problems as much these days in, in undeveloped, you know, less wealthy countries. Um, but you see other forms of disease. You might see more infectious diseases in those countries. But, you know, diabetes, you know, the, the level of diabetes and heart disease that we have are, they call them, they're affluent diseases. They only happen in countries that are, they don't only happen, but the, the levels they happen here with obesity, they only happen in, the, in wealthy countries, Western countries. And it's almost like willpower doesn't matter because I have, I have knowledge on nutrition. I'm pretty educated and I can overeat anything. Oh, well. No matter how much knowledge, yeah, I you're have. not going to beat. You're not going to beat your, your, the biology. You're not going to beat thousands of years of evolution just with your just with knowledge. You know, when you when that food's there, you want to you want to eat it, right? You, you it it's hard it's hard not to. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a, it's it's way beyond our 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 capability of, of of stopping ourselves. I think it's 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 inevitable if you put the food in front of us and the food's like empty, you know, there's like the corn syrup and all that kind of stuff. And interestingly, so what I remember specifically, and uh, we had a lecture with uh, the head of um, uh, what's the word? Like the, 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 it's not obesity doc. He's a surgeon who does um, laparoscopic, you know, the, the, that, um, 
basically all they, they st- staple some yeah stomach, like the, that the, one. i'm just blanking out of the name where with the tube around the stomach you know uh, those kind of operations and they said generally bariatric bariatric, that was, uh, bariatric uh, surgeon and uh they, they generally speaking it it, it it it's great at research they learning a lot but very very hard to someone who's obese to kind of reverse them that if you ever remember that show the what's that show the uh the biggest loser my my 600 pound life or Any that one, one of too. those they inevitably they all gain the weight back and it's just because they're yeah. just already pre so preconditioned it's not because they just get hungry and they start eating everything again they're just body is already so conditioned to be like that it's 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 hard to re- it's really tough to reverse it once you get in that condition so if we're so primed genetically to overeat to succumb to modern disease, why would you go through all this public health training if it's a fruitless endeavor? And I'm being facetious there, but if it's such an uphill battle, why are you so dedicated to improving well, why do, I mean, why do we do anything? Care? I'm not going to, I mean, it's either I'm going to, you know, put my hands up and, and sit down and say, all right, I guess we're just going to all, you know, you, we, we fight. We all put up a good fight. And doesn't just because it's tough doesn't mean we can't do it. And even if we, if we can make a little dent, I mean, it's a little dense, I think over time that can, that can make a difference. And, you know, one, I mean, we're, there are changes over time. I mean, you know, uh, nutritionally, I mean, look, there's a lot of, there's still a ton of problems with nutrition, but you know, the recognition of, I mean, look in the eighties when we were growing up, when I was growing up, at least, I don't know how old you are, but the, but, um, you know, the whole thing was, what was the whole thing? It was, uh, fat free. Right. That was the whole thing. Yep. And what did that mean? It means they loaded it up with sugar. I mean, I remember I remember the food pyramid, not the food pyramids, like such a like sacred thing. But that food pyramid, the whole bottom of the food pyramid, where you the thing you're supposed to eat the most was grains and cereals and bread and including yep. including like things like Captain Crunch and Honeycomb. <laughs> like, it's hilarious when you think about it now. Like they wanted they told you to eat this stuff because it was good for you. I mean, it's it's insane. Like if you remember, it was like. It's like it said a part of a. It always said in the commercials, part of a balanced breakfast, eating, eating this, this crap from this sugar from a box. I mean, it's it's insane when we think about it now. But these changes are happening. You know, they happen incrementally, but over time, you know, we're going to start hopefully see changes to where people will live longer. But you know, just to keep in mind, I, I actually I don't know if I read this, I heard it in a podcast, but one thing to keep in mind is that when you think of public health, and this is mostly a public health endeavor over over years. But I think in the last hundred years, everybody thinks of all the different amazing developments we've had. We've had, you know, people go to the moon and you had all these inventions and all this crazy stuff, computers. I mean, amazing stuff it definitely is. But people discount because it happens over a long, long period, such a long period of time that over the last hundred years, they've doubled lifespan generally. And they've taken massive oh, amounts. No yeah, they've taken massive amounts of people out of out of poverty. I don't know if it's 100 years, 150 years, but compared to like you know, we humans have been around for a few hundred thousand years, or you know, arguably, or however you want to think about it, but a long, long time. And just in the last you know 100, 200 years, we've massively increased our lifespan. But people don't really think about it that way because you weren't alive 100 years ago. You know, you didn't probably didn't know anybody alive 100 years ago. So it, it happened so incrementally that you don't give it credit. But that's a huge advantage. As obese as we are compared to then, you know, we're living a lot longer, you know, and, and people have been lifted out of poverty across the world in a vast way com- comparatively. So when you listen, when you think of public health in that in that regard, 
I mean, you can't argue that those those are some major changes. And was those changes due to public policies? Uh, yeah, you know, when I was in dental school, I, I think this was a it was a medical doctor who said this, but uh, he wasn't public health. But I remember specifically this. Um, he said, "Do you know what the the, the greatest uh, change in or the greatest medical invention ever made?" What's that? The toilet. Oh my! God. And he's right. I mean, you think about. You know, what do we used to throw our crap on the sidewalk, you know, and, and, you know, imagine what it must have smelled like. I mean, it was like there was nowhere for your crap to go and for your number ones to go. So, I mean, that alone reduced disease to a tremendous level. I mean, there's these things you just don't think about. That essentially is one of the most the greatest public health endeavors ever. In fact, there's this uh, the original public health. Historically, the, the person who's like like the GV Black of, of public health is this guy, John Snow. No, no relation to uh, Game of Thrones. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> uh, but he was, but he was from England, even though Game of Thrones is not really from England. But everybody on the show is British. Anyway, the uh, uh, so he, I think it was a cholera e- epidemic in London, uh, and he discovered that certain area. You know, he did the first kind of like analysis of saying like, oh wow, he had a map of London and said, you know, people are getting sick here, but they're not getting sick here. They're not getting. So he found a pattern. The pattern was water supply. Like he found that certain people got people who weren't getting sick were getting their their uh, water from this well, and the people who were getting sick were getting it. And that was the first, that was like the beginning of public health. They realized that's a massive, you know, it doesn't matter how many individual doctors can treat individual patients with cholera. What matters is this guy figured out that the water was making him sick, and now he could prevent thousands of people, if not everyone, from getting sick ever again from cholera. Not ever again, but you know, you see what I'm you see what you see the power of 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 a of change of a public health endeavor in that sense. So, um, yeah. So uh, that's a very long winded answer to the, uh, your original question, which was, um, about, you know, why bother, you know, that's essentially your, your question, but, but changes are slow, but that's why you bother because changes will happen over time. Well, I appreciate you proving me wrong. And that, that was my goal because I had the mentality if I'm not personally doing it, I can't rely on anyone else to do it for me. So although I don't want to speak negatively of the government on my podcast, um, I have more faith in my ability to help people than the government's ability to create policy to help people. But you're right. The guy that the water supply and the cholera, that's a huge deal. And I knew nothing about that. Yeah. And I don't know. Don't forget. I mean, public health doesn't just have to do with government, right? It could be you could be doing you could be doing public health things from your perspective as just an individual person. Uh, you know, anything, I mean, it's a broad thing, but uh, like, I, like I, I was at a continuing ed thing over actually this past weekend. And it's somebody who's, who, who is, is, is a well-known guy. He's, he's teaches all over the world and he's, and he's, and he's doing some amazing things in terms of education, in terms of teaching dentists, the right way to practice dentistry. And actually I had a chance to speak with him. And the first thing I said to him is like, um, you know, you really are providing amazing public public health. And he had no idea what I was talking about. And I said, think about all the students around the world you're teaching now, and they're able to take what you're teaching and bring it to their patients. I mean, that alone is something that is, to me, public health had nothing to do with policy, has nothing to do with working, and definitely doesn't work for the government, and um, can have amazing public health implications. I think when people think about public health, they're just thinking about the CDC 
you know, when you, if, if the first thing that comes to mind when you think of the CDC or the, or these government organizations or, um, you know, the, the uh, you know, the NIH stuff, you know, st stuff like that, um, you know, um, the world's world health, you know, WHO, all those kinds of things. But those are big public health organizations making a big difference, but people could be making a difference all over the place from a public health perspective, I think. And that, you know, even the water thing, the original guy, I had no relation. I don't think he had any relation to the government. He was just made a discovery and said, here, let's, let's make a change, you know? That's interesting you say that because I would assume public health, government funded, but you're totally right. Not that all these health influencers on like TikTok or public health, but do you know who Andrew Huberman is? He has a Huberman yes, Lab podcast. Yes. Yeah. So that would be considered probably public health because it's a free podcast and it really is providing health to the public. Yeah. I mean, I mean, in that sense, I mean, when you think of, I mean, I don't know if it's public health, but when you think of public education, I mean, education is a form of, of, I don't know, what are you, I guess it's sort of, it's not really health, but it's a public service, right? I mean, other th things can be public services without being related to the government, right? I mean, just like you said, with Huber, I'm sure Huber makes a ton of money too. I mean, however, however he does his business, but by providing free information like he's doing, he is provide. I think he is providing a service, and he should be. And why not be paid? You know, for whatever whatever he's doing, as long as he can. That's going to perpetuate him to be able to do more. You know, to continue to do what he's doing. Um, and if he's doing good work and he's providing good information, then 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 why not? Um, I guess the the down the flip side to that is, you know, not that the government's always right, but you know, having vetted information is is something that you know you know all the there's no shortage of information in general out there and at what percentage of it is valid information is the question, you know, 1%, yeah. if not less. <laughs> right. So, so there's, you know, there's, there's hit and miss with both. Everybody has to be their own, um, you know, uh, uh, peer review, I guess you call it, you know, everybody has to do that for themselves and, and evaluate the information. Um, I think, you know, when you look online now, there's all kinds of there's some, if you remember, like in, in, in college, I think I went to college before computers hadn't really, the internet definitely wasn't around. Compu internet had just started maybe, but it didn't have like the, your, the resources like it has now. And you had a good, when you did a research paper, you had to research and find the stuff and, you know, maybe, but now everything's online. There's so much, there's like a barrage of so much online. It's much harder to evaluate what's real, what's, what's not, what's good, what's not, you know, it's even, even the it's still a very small percentage of, of research that's actually valid. Right. Um, you know, so it's, so it's, it's, it, in that sense, it's, it's a little, a little more difficult in terms of the, the amount of information, but the overall notion though, that you could be providing public health without being in, a, in the government. I don't know if that's technically right. I don't know if you have, I don't think you have to be in a government organization to provide a public health service. Right. I mean, if you, if would you, I would argue that if somebody, is um, influencing how you know a school lunch program is eating. I would say that's a public health service. It it, it impacts many you know many people, if not a large percent of the public uh, population's health. You know, uh, you know, there's those chefs who go on. I just, there's that guy Jamie Oliver. You know that guy? He was like a English chef. I remember he had a show once where he went into schools in California, was trying to change their lunch program and doing all these things. He did have to deal with government organization, but he was trying to he was trying to pro promote it. Um, so there's all these people do, who can be doing different things from their perch of what they do, right? It doesn't have to be like I'm a public health official working in the organization that's providing policy, right? It could be just 
the person on the ground just trying to make a change for something. And that's what you're trying to do. And I didn't ask you if I could bring this up, so I will edit this next part out if you say no. But you're trying to teach students outside of a university yes. setting. Can you explain that? Yeah. So um, yeah. So I was teaching uh, at dental at a dental school. Uh, so like I said, I went from uh, public health, and I, I wanted to go into teaching because I thought that was a good way to start spreading kind of my idea of working from the bottom up in terms of you know, helping dentists to then help their patients, but basically helping more patients than I could on my own. So I was working in a school, connecting great with the, uh, with the patients and the, and the students. It was, a, it was clinically, I was working with D3s and D4s in the, you know, in the, in the clinic. And, um, but I was seeing a lot of problems with the, with the bureaucracy of the school, a lot of you know, the systemic problems. You know, there's, there's, there's definitely a slant toward, I don't want to say greed, but like trying to lie, trying to, to make more money. I mean, I don't know what else to say. Um, you know, they're, they're raising tuition on the students there. And at the same time, not necessarily increasing resources to, to see more patients. So essentially you're just diluting the education, right? I mean, um, I was, I went to, I went to UMDNJ, which is now Rutgers. Uh, I graduated in 02. So I, I, I recall them, the mission being we're here to provide, and it's a state school and I'm from New Jersey originally, it's a state school and we're here to provide, uh, to, to uh, educate providers to provide uh, clinical service for our, our state, right? That was kind of the mission of the school. I remember that. I remember them saying that and, and stuck with me a little bit. And I felt for the most part, they followed through with that. Like they delivered on that. I learned clinically, I thought I had a good clinical education enough to graduate and move on and feel like, not that I was, not that I was ready to go to private practice, but I you know, was ready to move on to residency. It just felt like a fluid kind of experience. And, you know, I had my own unit. I saw patients morning and afternoon. Um, and I had enough, I think I had plenty of clinical experience. I, my requirements were, were pretty robust. I had to do 18 crowns. I had to do X amount of dentures. I had to do, you know, you had your numbered requirements. Yet when I went to the dental school to teach, it was much more diluted. And I don't know if it's across the board. I can only speak for the school I was at, but I've heard other people talk, speaking about their school, their school experiences. And it seems to be a, more of a systemic problem now. And they're focused on raising tuition. Um, <clears throat> the students I, where I was teaching did not have um, their own unit. Like they paired third and fourth years, which on the surface seems like it could be great. But it, what it really does is, is dilute your experience, your ability to have clinical opportunities to see patients. So and there's that. And they, then they increase the number of students, you know, in the school. And then, you know, so but they didn't necessarily increase increase the number of resources. Right. So it's just more students just to you know make more money, you know, you know, they have expansion into other states and they're trying to just do all these things that are kind of not in the best interest of the students. And that bugged the crap out of me. I mean, and uh, I mean, long story short, <laughs> I, uh, I I made my first post on, uh, on Facebook, I think it was March 9th um, of this year. And it was a Thursday morning when I was working and uh, I, I, it was on, it was on a Facebook page that was pretty popular and I didn't even realize that, but anyway, I posted and, uh, it was pretty opinionated and they didn't like that. So they decided that, uh, um, they didn't actually fire me, but I decided, you know, they were making all kinds or they were right away. They didn't even bother talking to me. They were just very much like, you know, they, they didn't like what I said, which is fine, but it didn't, I understand that they didn't like what I said, but it doesn't necessarily 
let them off the hook of, of how they're behaving and how they're, uh, I think there some practices are almost questionably ethical. So um, that's kind of, that kind of drove me out of the school in terms of I resigned at that point. And, uh, but I still love teaching. And then that's the part that hurt the most is that I love my students. I, and that was what prompted to make the post in the first place is it was all about me caring for the students to the point where I just had, I had to speak up. And um, what it did was I think it opened the floodgates a little bit of other people coming out now in their schools and uh, speak being more outspoken about the problems going on in their schools, which I didn't even know wasn't going on before, but someone told me that it wasn't really going on before. And this kind of occurrence kind of opened it up a little bit yet people are still pretty anonymous about it. I'm the only idiot to not be anonymous about it, but, uh, but uh, <laughs> so yeah. how are you teaching the students now? Outside yeah, so of the I, school? I, uh, I'm dabbling with a couple different uh, things. I'm, I'm in actually in collaboration with um, uh, a pretty well-known person who runs a, 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 a dental education platform and I'm looking to develop, or I'm and developing, we're actually beta testing right now, um, kind of like a club, if you will, a case review club. I was actually doing this on my own when I was in in the school because they didn't give enough time for students to learn how to treatment plan because it was all about money, money, money. Got to churn, 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 just do procedures. That was their whole their whole thing. They didn't, and I actually went to and I actually went to the the administration several times to verbally just t say like there's a problem the kids don't know how to treatment plan you know that they, they don't know how to speak a patient you know they they didn't care they just they just you know they're all they care about is just keeping the keeping the money machine running and um so i was you know so i was on the side with the students i was doing virtual consults with them like like we're doing now we'd look over their cases and we discuss them and we and i was just doing it on my own time i wasn't you know i'm, I'm not being all like high and mighty about it but i wasn't being paid for it but and they had no interest in paying for it so uh, the the school so but I had to do it because I told if I'm gonna if I'm gonna tell them this is how this is how you treat and plan in in the chair and we didn't have time to go over it I felt responsible for saying well let's have, let's make the time to go over it and they're not making the time to do that um, and granted there's a lot to learn as a dentist dental school is not an easy business I'm not saying it is but um, treatment planning and speaking to patients to me is what it makes the difference between a tooth mechanic and a doctor, right? I don't think you call yourself yeah. a doctor unless you know how to treatment plan and you know how to communicate with patients well. And doctor by definition comes from the word teacher. So there you go. So is it all virtual with, I know you can't mention who you're yep. working with now. Is it all virtual or are any students going to see you in person? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's going to, no, well for now it's, it's going to be virtual. I feel like you know, cause it could okay. be patient uh, students could be from anywhere. So, um, you know, down the road, I'm open to doing different things. I'm kind of just still exploring. At the, at the core of it, I want to teach. I love teaching. Um, I think I teach well. I'm not saying I'm the master dentist of, of the world, like, uh, you know, in terms of um, there are dentists out there that are doing amazing things, which I'm sure, you know, surpass my ability. But I do have the ability to know how to treatment plan pretty much any case. Like, I think Dawson prepared me well for that, like in terms of, you know, how to examine occlusion. And, and things like that. But I think I'm, I do feel like I'm pretty good at connecting with the, the student and helping explain things. And, and the main thing I think is, is knowing how to speak with patients. I think that's the big thing that I think students struggle with that I think, you know, where I can help the most and, and how to combine that with what you're treatment planning. And I think that's, 
you know, that to me, that's the essence of being a good dentist. I totally agree. Do you know who Eric Vickery is? Vicker? He run yeah, is it Vicker I, or Vickery? He runs All Star Dental Academy. I don't know, but I'll look but I'll look it up. He was he was just on my podcast and he explained that if your clinical skills are a ten, but your communication skills are a five, patients will perceive perceive you as a three. That's a that's a that's a great that's a great point. He's totally I mean it's that's I totally agree with that. I mean I couldn't agree more with that, you know. I mean I didn't And I totally agree with what you're saying. When I came out of school, I've been out for almost 10 years now. I couldn't talk to anyone. And I thought, wow, I'm extroverted. I'm easygoing. I'll be able to communicate with every patient. Man, was it a struggle. And without people like you guiding young, stupid dentists like me, we, we flounder in the first five to seven years of practice. I think everybody flounder. I think everybody flounder. I mean, it's, 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 it's a natural thing. Just like you know, you could go in there and prep a margin like it's like with your eyes closed and, and you have that dexterity now when you first come out, you just don't have, you know, you're just fun. You know, it's like, like to to us, it looks like, you know, this, the tooth looks this big and you're just like going like that to a, to a new grad. It's like, oh man, how do I, you know, it's hard, you know, you just don't have the physically haven't developed that coordination yet and you're, and you're working on it. And I think it's the same thing with communication. I mean, yeah, some people just have it really well and they're just naturally, you know, in a certain place. Um, I think, I think if any, if I had to say it was naturally good anywhere coming out, that would be it. And I think it served, it served me well. That's how I wanted to create my, that's why I started a practice because I wanted it to be this very patient focused, spend a lot of time with the patient, you know, develop rapport, um, develop a relationship, collaborate. Like I have this whole thing about collaborating with patients with, with treatment, not, not just dictating, not just giving a choice. Here's one, here's my treatment plan. One, two, three, which one do you want? You know, none of that. In fact, I, you know, I have a whole thing where it's not about, and it, people still go out there and say, this is about selling your dentistry. To me, that's a dirty word. I don't care what anybody says. You never have to sell and you're going to do just fine. I mean, it's just, it's just, it, it, there's plenty of dentistry to do out there. And there's, and if you're doing it right and you're talking to your patients and you're doing comprehensive care, you're going to make plenty of money. That's not going to be ever the issue. I totally agree. So we're coming up in the hour mark. Yeah. And towards the end, I always ask a couple of questions. The first question I ask is, in terms of public health for you, what is one takeaway you'd want the audience to have from this conversation? Uh, um, that public health exists. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a thing. <laughs> um, I mean, it, like, we, like I said, it is a specialty. Also, I don't, I don't think you have to be exclusive to it. You know, I think sometimes people think, well, if I go public health, you know, then I can't do this other thing. Look, you, I actually just—I actually just made a Facebook post about this this morning. I said, uh, "What I say? I call it career elasticity. You know, like dentistry has very good career elasticity. You can do all these different things. I think once dentists start hearing like noise around them, they start hearing, oh, you have to own your own practice. You have to, you know, do it this way. You have to do it that way.' And I think um, it's intimidating. You know, if young dentists come out. And I know they're intimidated. I've spoken to them." They don't, you know, they, they don't know, you know, they don't know where, where they're going to be working. You know, they, they may even, even after residency, even if they do a residency, which I think all dentists should, should do, or if they don't have an exact kind of like blueprint of what they want to do, you know, even after residency, it's still not, you know, you know, drawn out for them. Like it's guaranteed. Can you imagine you're coming out of dental school, you spent all this money, put all this work in, you did a residency and it's still not a clear path where you're going. It's kind of nutty when you think about it. Right. 
Um, so like for me, I wanted to start my own practice. That was, I knew that from the start. So I was associate for a little bit, but I knew I wanted to start my own practice. That's just what I wanted. I wanted that experience. Right. And now look, I'm, I'm an old, I'm, I'm older now, I'm, I'm, but I'm still, I still have that hunger to like evolve and do different things and explore. And, and that's why I didn't want to stay in my practice. I could have coasted for the rest of my career and done, and done fine. But, but to me, it's, it's, that's what's exciting about, about being a healthcare professional. You're not tied to it. Um, and I think dentistry kind of has that notion that, um, you know, once you're a dentist, you know, you can't pivot anywhere else. Like you, you're, you're a dentist forever. Right. And while I still stayed in dentistry, you could pivot into other things too, like, you know, side ventures and, and all that kind of thing. So, the, you know, but that, that's kind of the, the big message. Don't be, don't feel like you're so, um, you know, refined, you know, confined to any one area and, public health is something that you can do and be involved in without making it your full-time career. Dan, I got to tell you, um, I really appreciate the way you're thinking because you're a little bit older than me and you have not given in to cynicism. And that is such a good quality to have. Like I said, I have a PhD in pessimism. <laughs> I have another PhD in negative thinking. And on the side, my side hustle is cynicism. <laughs> And the the fact that you're still out there trying to work for the good is very inspiring. So I appreciate you coming on here and proving me wrong. Well, I appreciate you having me. And 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 uh, as pessimistic as you are, you're you're you, you know I, I argue that I'll argue that I'll I'll play the opposite side well, you, of that. You can't disagree with me on my podcast. <laughs> so the last thing I want to ask is, um, where can people find you? How can people reach out to you and help you with your cause? Yeah, so I mean, I'm, I am on mainly. I'm on Facebook. Uh, you know, I, you can find me on LinkedIn, um, and I'm on Facebook. I have a group called uh, Dentists Making a Difference. So that's uh, you know, dentists with an dentists with an S, um, and that's kind of like a a uh, a extension of what I do, where it's ba basically about teaching, learning, ad advocacy, and uh, you know, I just you know, I just started that a little while ago. It's you know, it's, it has it has couple hundred members or whatever as a couple hundred members already and um uh that's kind of where i'm just kind of putting my content more or less um but feel free to reach out to me there um and you know i can give you my email and and, and whatnot and you can put it up there great so that's dentists making a difference on facebook dentists making a difference on facebook and i'm i'm on there as, as daniel faber awesome okay well thank you again for coming on and uh, i'll talk thank to you, you soon. so much Vince. i appreciate it all right, bye, Dan. Bye -bye.